0: I watched a lot of movies, I feel like. I did too. Most of them by the same director. (laughs)
1: I'm uh, looking back so I can see what I told you we agreed to watch.
0: I have five movies on my diary, not including watching Little Women and Emma with Shireen streaming. She loved both of them.
1: All right, I'm back to our last week audio fail. So I think oh. if I scroll down from there, I'll see the movies that we talked about. Right. This is going to be good.
0: Uh, the one non-PTA movie that we agreed to watch that was new was Swallow.
1: Right. That's the first one that I'm looking up. Yes. Should we talk about that one first? Sure. All right. So Swallow is a 2019 psychological thriller film. Written by Carlo Mirabella Davis in his directorial debut, that is really shocking to me, yeah, that was a really strong debut um so this is about a young woman who is in a pretty unhappy marriage to a man of means um they're controlled fairly mercilessly by his parents because of uh their fingers that they've got in their finances. And she finds that she can find uh, some sort of control over her own life or her own body by swallowing small objects from from around the house. That makes her feel free and alive. And she is newly pregnant in the movie. And so the procedures of checking on the baby reveal some of the objects she has inside of her. And the family finds out about this and they become increasingly controlling of her. They hire a uh, a bodyguards, the wrong word, just an attendant to make sure that she doesn't swallow more things. And ultimately, she needs to decide if she is going to conform to the wishes of her husband and his family, or if she is going to uh, take up her own agency and live life on her own terms. And I think that's the synopsis. do you have anything to add to that
0: adeptly described no i'll I'll just um get into my my reactions to it and it is a it's a stylish movie but yet it remains grounded meaning it has a little bit of um, style in the way it's presented and filmed and it's slightly heightened from reality but it is not i wondered if it was going to have some kind of like Body horror element or some kind of like magical realism, but it's very much about a real uh, condition called pica. Pica um, that a lot of people uh, experience. A lot of pregnant women apparently experience mm-hmm. some level of this. Even my wife Shereen ate a lot of ice while she was pregnant, and I was surprised not only at how kind of grounded in, in in the real world it stayed, despite being a psychological thriller film but also how it's ending. I kind of expected it to get bonkers at the end and it really gets quite real.
1: Yes. I thought that this movie was pretty extraordinary. Um, especially seeing that it's a debut. Haley Bennett plays the young woman Hunter who um, is outclassed by her new family. She is trapped. She's isolated. And I thought her performance was so strong. She was captivating yeah. to me to watch the use of color in the film was great. Um, and it wasn't a geek show. It wasn't like, oh, what gross things can we have this person swallow? She is a very desperate person. And I felt like the psychological tone that they set for her made things made make sense. I loved how they shot all the food throughout as looking disgusting, Mm -hmm. you know, this fancy meal that people have at the beginning, you watch the entire process of the lamb getting slaughtered. And by the time it gets to the table, you're like, As the person takes the first bite Um, and contrast that with when she finds the marble, which is the first thing that she swallows and it just is gleaming in the sunlight. And it's this, you know, beautiful looking little pearl, um, you're really seeing it through her vantage point and all the food that's around just looks awful.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a it's kind of an experience and empathy for sure. And I love movies like that um, where it's not over the top. It's very just kind of frank and you you feel for her. She, to me, she has a she's kind of got a January Jones quality to her, but Absolutely. even more sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I agree with, with everything you've, you've said. It's a it's a startlingly simple and beautiful movie. Uh, it's heartbreaking. She's a very re- relatable character more than any of the quote, you know, normal people, douchey rich people that she's surrounded by David uh, Rache or rash. I don't really know how you say his name, but her, her uh, father-in-law is a, a dude. I remember from a show called sledgehammer back in the day, a, a kind of wacky sitcom about an out of control cop, but he's great. A great character actor shows up in Coen brothers stuff from time to time. Her husband was uh, loathsome. Um, but, but again, the movie, it's not a cartoon. And so even he's capable of being somewhat tender with her sometimes, and yet always in a very controlling and possessive kind of way.
1: Um, Yeah. Themes about a woman's right to choose. I mean, obviously run through this completely, you know, overtly. Um, and there's a subplot as well, where we get to see just a little bit of her family life, where she's. Disconnected pretty much from her mother. And we come to understand the story um, of how she was uh, conceived. And uh, Dennis O'Hare has an interesting turn as her father that she seeks out. I kind of love that scene because, in a way, it's such an unthinkable thing to do to show up to this party all of a sudden right. uninvited. At the same time, she really has nowhere else to go. She's, she's trapped and she's haunted by. Yeah. Where she comes from, even as she's pregnant,
0: the pika stuff is odd and kind of an entry point into this this story being weird and interesting. But really, you understand when you see what living her truth entails—the the things she has to walk through and confront just to start to live her life on her own terms. You kind of understand why you know the pika is is a quaint alternative to right. to what it actually looks like to inhabit her lone life.
1: She's so lonely and it seems like everyone in the movie is, but she's the only one who seems to care because they're all from this world of isolation and um, allowing money to matter above all else. It's not such an unreasonable thing for her husband to be so worried about this. It's not just that she swallowed a marble once. Like some of these objects could be harmful if yeah. his concern isn't out of line. His not listening to her or trying to understand her and and just exerting more and more external control on her life and existence makes uh, life completely intolerable for her in that home and she needs to escape. And I thought it was a, a really relatable story about something that is so specific and I really have nothing to relate it to.
0: Um I don't remember the actress's name, but she's a familiar face, the mother-in-law who maybe gives her the closest thing to a human connection in the family. I think the Mm -hmm. therapist is probably the most human person she encounters, but uh, another good performance. The ending, which I won't spoil or talk about too much is interesting because it's not a full on happy redemptive ending. It just is what it is. And it feels like she kind of passes through, uh, you know, a, a, a chapter in her journey. And it's kind of odd, the la- literally the last shot, and the that extends through the end credits, but I found it strangely very moving.
1: Oh, I agree. She seems like it wants a different person, but also her true self at the end.
0: Just seeing the way that she dresses and carries herself, she yes. feels more like an identifiable human, real human being than what she was kind of play-acting at in the beginning of the film. Um, I mean, I guess if I'm going to nitpick plot things that really don't matter... It's interesting that she somehow still had means that she was able to go to the, you know, the the doctor. And um, I figured once she was out of the house, she would be cut off and wouldn't have any maybe. I I think it's wise of the movie not to bother addressing that. I just had questions about how is she doing all this?
1: Yeah, I had questions about how she got involved with him, seeing her more of her true self. I can't imagine they ever would have encountered each other. Would have been interested in each other. How was he able to almost kind of hitchcock girl her into right. becoming this version of this blonde woman who she's just was not?
0: Yeah. So um between this and Blow uh Blow the Man Down, these were two new releases that just happened to pop on my radar. Unfortunately, I don't have the next, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of interesting stuff out there, but I don't have any like hot new titles for us to focus in on. Yeah, these were two uh, good ones. Our, yeah. And definitely a a new director to watch. Yeah. Uh, Before we shift into what's going to be, you know, kind of a little mini-series on uh, PTA, is there anything else uh, before we shift over into Paul Thomas Anderson? Well,
1: yeah. We both watched Lady in a Cage.
0: Oh, yes, we did.
1: (laughs) Which I highly recommend. To anyone who's sitting at home with nothing to do this is available this is olivia de Havilland and uh, james khan in his premiere and it's exactly what it sounds like right. this woman yeah, right. who has this elevator open air <laughs> elevator installed in her um elaborate opulent home um gets stuck halfway and she can't get back up. she She's going to fall if she goes down. This is before the time of uh, technology that would allow her to rescue herself. Her son has just left. She There are questions about her relationship with her son. And uh, just intruders come into the house and terrorize her. And there's nothing she can do about it. And in one way, it was so old-fashioned melodrama. And it was also remarkably current to me for 1964 in a way that um, unmasked a lot of the um, 1950s conventions that I think I still expect when I see a movie that looks like this. What Mm. a curiosity for me. I laughed throughout. To me, it was a roaring good time.
0: There is a type, as a fan of cheesy movies and mystery science theater, and, and I've seen, not I've not seen a lot of movies just like this one, but in the genre of like hoodlum exploitation movies where, um, you know a bunch of like usually they're much worse than this this is a a very interesting version of it but there's usually a bunch of no good hoodlums who are uh you know off on a crime spree and then it's some kind of morality tale about how their parents failed them or whatever this one was interesting just because of the way it portrayed society and culture but i don't know there's something to me about 60s punks The way they're portrayed in movies from the time that they just uh, I know they're supposed to I'm not supposed to like them, but they really rub me the wrong way. And usually they're played by like 40 year olds pretending to be teenagers.
1: Oh, totally. um,
0: But yeah, James Caan. I mean, boy, he's he's uh, aggressively unpleasant in this movie. Yeah.
1: There's such a stark expression of sexuality throughout.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: No one can have a shirt on. Right. Everyone's sitting by someone else's tub. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. So I, I do acknowledge all the things that you say are kind of uh revelatory about this movie and unique, but I can't say that I enjoyed it. It was very uh it rubbed me the wrong way, it was unpleasant.
1: Oh yeah, you know, it's not a fact good fact. movie. Just interesting in the lexicon of film, and I didn't um and I'm <laughs> not sorry that I watched it. Is that a good review?
0: Yeah, well sure. For, so, for hold Up. <laughs> solid for, for Dan Hammer on Holds Up.
1: That's <laughs> <laughs> No, I watched it.
0: High praise. Uh, Olivia De Havilland's good. Her the relationship with the son is very interesting. We get some insight into it. Uh, I would have appreciated more, maybe, if there was more uh, digging into that. But hey, I realized this like a week after watching it. Do they ever follow up on the lady who's locked in the wine closet?
1: No, they don't.
0: <laughs> so they she's don't. Presumably still there.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was uh, brought up in some you know trivia that I was, as I was reading through. It was like it's left a mystery as to what happens to this woman. And I was like, well. I hope she escaped because like wouldn't somebody else have come in the house? Wouldn't you knock yeah. on the door? You're right there.
0: The the wino, the drunk guy, boy, that's a, a very uh outmoded character movie oh, character of the wacky right. drunk. Right.
1: That's like Mark's brother's territory. Yeah. So old fashioned.
0: I I'm not typically I'm worried about spoilers not with a 1964 <laughs> No, not with movie. He's, he's murdered in cold blood, so I guess that's a new <laughs> riff on the character. <laughs>
1: yes. And then the ending, after all of the, you know, drama, it's not very interesting, but um after all of the ordeals that the characters go through, the, it's just such a clear-cut ending. Of they're the bad people, officer, arrest them. Right. Yes. You know, right. and the last image is just them being arrested, pretty much. Right. Um, and now everything is back to being right. okay again because the evil people have been killed or arrested. And we don't know what happened to the son. And this woman, now traumatized, will right. need to get some insurance claims on her destroyed home.
0: Right. In a weird way, Olivia De Havilland is like a a proto final girl. Like she just. The, you know the end of the movie she's panting and bleeding she survived right. this ordeal
1: i feel almost like with that film i mean who knows about that film i'm i'm not that much of a his, film history buff but like the curtain went down on the kind of movie that the beginning of the movie was trying to be like that mm-hmm. 1950s opulent home stylized female performance um, along the line, it like remind, she reminded me a little bit of like Sunset Boulevard almost like to those right. sorts of um, melodra- melodrama levels. And at the end, it just seemed like fresh and we're in the 60s and we need to get into color like the black and white is out of place. And right. some really kind of shocking things happened. Like yeah. when she pulled out like her two knives that hadn't worked before. Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of a shocking event. Yes. For a, for a movie like this.
0: And the demise of uh, James Khan.
1: Yeah, that's what that's what I mean.
0: Extremely brutal. Yes,
1: that whole yeah. sequence, that whole yeah, yeah, yeah. And I One feel other... like that's 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 more brutal than Hitchcock to me.
0: Yeah, yeah. One other thing, also, and I'm I'm I could very well be reading too much into this, but there's a scene. You know, a lot of the movie uh, unfolds. Um, with with real tension as she's trapped in the elevator and, you know, starting to realize that it's a problem and there's this external alarm that she can ring that's supposed to call somebody to help and it really only ends up drawing the 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 bad people. But there's one little silent moment where some workers drive by in a truck and a black construction worker gets out and he kinda just chooses to ignore it. And yeah. I wondered if there was some commentary there where he just kind of looked at the neighborhood and was like, Nope, not not worth it, or if I'm well, reading too much of that, no.
1: no, I think that absolutely is a thing. I kind of thought the same thing because the film zooms in on black people a few times, very, very distinctly, very obviously, and it didn't make any remarks further than that about race, right. but I thought there there's they have it on their mind,
0: yeah, one of the first images is is some little uh black girls playing. Right, And the very interesting opening credits.
1: Right. I think it happened two or three times before he came that there was just kind of like the zoom in on a black extra who we don't have any other encounter with. And then, of course, I mean, that doesn't seem like a safeguard, by the way, that just a bell rings outside your house to call right. the police and you just hope to God that if you're stuck for days or right. weeks that someone helps
0: you. I- it would have to be enough of an established thing that people would know what that is.
1: Right. And she's like, to think all the times I heard those bells and did nothing. <laughs> like, if, really? I heard that...
0: <laughs> <laughs> if I heard that in my neighborhood, I would assume somebody went out for the day and something was broken in their house and they were right. rude for not fixing it. I wouldn't think somebody needed help.
1: You could still call, you know, 311 or whatever it is and just say, hey, this bell's going off. Make a round, you know? Right. If it's a yeah. kid or if it's broken, you'll find that out. But if someone needs help, then go help them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. I guess it was... Uh... We got
1: a lot of convo about over that.
0: I had more to say about it than I thought I did.
1: And there's another thing before we go on to PTA, and I won't spend okay. a lot of time, but I watched The Party as we as we spoke. Oh, you did. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need to go into it, but I, since I'm no longer good at movies, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Not because I really enjoyed it, but because I was... Right like delighted by it. I was delighted by how overwritten it was, how ridiculous some of the problems were. What a cast. How did they convince this A-list cast? I'm I'm thinking behind the scenes, how did the script get distributed and people agreed to do it? And how much were they paid?
0: Every actor notable.
1: Yes. Yes. And it's done in black and white. It has a lot of gravitas and self-importance, overlit Everyone is over dramatic and just screaming at each other. And what was it about really? It was about the British healthcare system. I mean, was that what right. we're supposed to care about? What? Like is was it a, a preachy film about healthcare Great. for all? I, I do not know what the movie was about. But it's saving grace is it really is only about sixty-five minutes, which right. is like that's some, I mean it's not a short film, but it's not feature length. And so yeah. Yeah. I was able to get through some of the more drudging parts of it just knowing that oh it's almost over Mm -hmm. and you could just kind of let a lot of that go oh i don't need to be invested for too much longer um i wanted to meet the character of mystery this i won't spoil in case somebody wants to um wants to watch it but they're a true sociopath so i would have liked to have met them and brought them into the
0: proceedings yeah well we get one shot from their perspective
1: Right. And let me tell you, it, seem, it sure seemed like it was based on a play, though. I don't think it was um, a real bad play if it, if it were. And it's too short, so it couldn't be a play. Right. I just think too long, well, long for a one act, act, too short right. for a play. Right. Who, who thought this up? Who thought that they had something to say and that these characters were the mode through which to share this insight? Yeah. Oh, what a mess. And I loved it.
0: <laughs> uh, I might have known. I'm glad. I'm glad to have hooked you up with your fix. Um, yeah, it's definitely it's as you say it's short enough that it's worth. If any of this sounds tantalizing, just give it a watch. It's right. it's right there for free on Amazon Prime. I remember seeing the trailers for this and being intrigued because you know black and white, great casts, quirky looking melodramatic. It looked like it might have been really good, and then right. All right, so Dan, you uh, I'm trying to figure out how we're going to do this? You selected "There Will Be Blood." You suggested "There Will Be Blood" as our, I mean I watched uh, it. You watched it and so then it came,
1: i said hey that'd be a good apparent.
0: one that would be a very good one uh and then just kind of circling around that i think we both managed to watch a couple or a few other paul thomas anderson movies uh i did not get to inherent vice which is now the only one i haven't seen um so i guess i'll, I'll save that one i mean i i feel like i spent too much time in his universe this past week so i might not be in a huge hurry for that one but um Overall, I enjoyed it very much. So, the, the only two that I saw other than the, wa- rewatching There Will Be Blood were Heart Eight, his first feature, and The Master, which I had not seen yet.
1: So, why don't you talk about The Master first, since I've been okay. doing a lot of talking?
0: All right. Um, now, I, his movies are very intense, and I watched them all back to back. So, I have to kind of like pick through <laughs> these intense experiences and remember which is which. So, The Master was uh, his 2012 film. Starring Joaquin Phoenix. Um, as, what, what wasn't? Uh, true. And we're, we're still stuck in that holding Which pattern. Which of his
1: movies wasn't?
0: I've been intending to watch The Master for so long um, just to catch up with movies that are, you know, uh, prestigious and uh, movies by this director and with casts like this. It just, it always kind of looked like homework, but I uh, I knew I had eventually to get around to it. So, Freddie. Fr- Freddie Quell. Walking Phoenix is Freddie Quell, who is essentially a, uh, a loser without a lot of prospects. And he um, seems to be a little troubled in his mind. And he goes off to
1: a World War II veteran.
0: World War II veteran. That's right. Is he in? He's in one of those like uh, those troop boats in uh, like a D-Day. Yeah, and the South movie Pacific spares Pacific us any combat. <laughs> we just kind of see him, you know, gallivanting and fraternizing with some of his fellow soldiers um, and then we see what appears to be their trip home after the war, and then he seems to. Gosh, I'm really like struggling to think back to, to this movie. This, it's so dense; so much happens in this movie, and yet, and so little, so little of consequence. But I ultimately, I I, I like this movie. I think I like this movie more than you do.
1: Yeah, I um, really dis. I kind of dislike it actually.
0: Ultimately, what happens is the character Freddie Quell finds his way into the company of Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lancaster Dodd, self-authorized philosopher, doctor, author, uh, essentially a stand-in for a L. Ron Hubbard type. He writes and he leads what is essentially a cult. It's not exactly Scientology. I think they've had to be very careful to say this is not L. Ron Hubbard. But he essentially teaches people that by traveling back through their own past lives, they can eradicate disease and they can eventually if enough people do this they can free mankind from their bondage to mental illness and failure and all sorts of things uh amy adams is his wife peggy dodd and freddie uh basically becomes a helper an intern a uh enforcer for uh this strange cult and uh, i don't know, to me dan this movie overall is a I'm going to compare it to "There Will Be Blood," which is awkward because we haven't gotten there yet. But these are both, to me, kind of operatic uh, American portraits of like, he, he, like almost as if Paul Thomas Anderson has picked two uniquely American things and then like smashed them into each other. So, in "There Will Be Blood," it's capitalism and religion, and here it's like PTSD and and cults and. Yeah, I can't say that I love this movie and that I was tracking with it. I just, something about the way that it's shot, something about the way that he sets up these like character disasters, something about the way Paul Thomas Anderson directs and the way these actors inhabit these roles where I felt like I was appreciating what the movie was getting at even when I was checking my watch. Oh, it was
1: so boring. I was so bored and I just wanted it to be over. Like the, the, uh, premise and synopsis sounds like it should be right up my alley i'd love Mm -hmm. to watch a the unraveling of a of a cult in the mid-20th century that sounds great (laughs) this was not the thing though i i agree with you about the look it had an interesting look it's a top tier cast oh yeah and to what consequence like There will be blood. We'll talk about this in a second. But when we're talking about capitalism and religion, these two big concepts, I feel like the metaphor worked in the characters, and it brought it to this lyrical and inevitable crescendo of madness um, in the final moments. And what do we learn about PTSD and cults? What happened? What's what happens when those two things collide? I I didn't. I didn't get what the movie was trying to say.
0: And to yeah, I. Um, I guess the only little thread of anything that I come away with is, to me, Freddie Quell seemed like this quintessential American loser who basically is thrown into you know uh, the front lines, and then because there is no support system for him when he returns and his mental illness and his PTSD. Uh, he finds his way into the clutches of this cult and he basically just starts beating up people who criticize the master like uh, and that's very depressing and bleak. But to me, it said something about the way America is ill-equipped, you know, people we send people to fight our fights. And then when they come back, what do we have for them but alcohol and cults? And that's not enough to justify maybe the whole journey of this movie. I'm not trying to defend it on that level, but that's for me, that's what I grabbed onto.
1: Yeah, I could see it, um, especially had it been made a little later, to say, um, what what causes people to follow after a cult leader and to defend them violently? You know, it's been some sort of trauma. And to maybe make that trauma a little more universal, yeah. um, that it's not just about veterans PS, PTSD, but uh, what, what does a nation's PTSD look like um, right, for right. for involvement in endless wars? and um, less and less hope or prospects um, that that you turn to these saviors that really just perpetuate more violence instead of bringing any peace. I could see that um, working in a more contemporary film than this one.
0: Yeah. I feel like if I'm going to criticize the movie a little more, um, There Will Be Blood kind of marked a, a sea change in the work of Paul Thomas Anderson where he'd made some movies that were artistic but also um, a little more friendly to audiences crime movies romance movies Mm -hmm. that had an artistic touch but i think they were more palatable and easier to sell and you could kind of feel him making a statement with there will be blood that we'll talk about more in a moment where he was shifting to this kind of space that he's inhabited since where he's much more interested in character and mood and feeling and and acting Mm -hmm. than in story or uh you know, that kind of stuff. So I feel like maybe there was a confidence that he gained from There Will Be Blood that here he's kind of squelching or, 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 you know, uh, is making him a little too confident in this, in this style. Because this is such a peculiar movie to think who is supposed to enjoy sitting in a theater watching this movie, oh. even if I enjoyed aspects of it myself. Uh, it's a very hard sell. And I have not seen Inherent Vice yet, but I hear the kind of same thing about that.
1: Yeah, I'll be interested to hear your take on it. I like Inherent Vice better than I like this. Mm. Um there there's just more interest even though I didn't have any idea what was going on most of the time in Inherent Vice. It was a more enjoyable ride. Um there'll be blood, you know, like you say it was a new watershed moment. And what what a great film year that was part of. Um mm-hmm. to me after The Master um with um Phantom Thread he went to a new height after that. That yeah. as we had talked about Phantom yes, Thread is indeed. Totally. my favorite and I think yours as well of his filmography.
0: Yes. Um so I'm ready to leave this one behind. I think we have one more maybe to talk about, but I'm inclined to take our break now for a couple of reasons. We've been talking for 35 minutes and I'm nervous about Zencaster's server issues and I want to make sure we can get this audio and that we didn't just waste 35 minutes. And so did you see Hard Eight as well? I did. So maybe we'll just give that a quick go, uh, you know, and look at, um, kind of the journey of Paul Thomas Anderson between that and the big, the big one we're going to revisit. Uh, so let's take a little break and we'll come back and talk about those movies. Dan, I don't know if I ever told you my Paul Thomas Anderson story. Did I ever tell you that?
1: Um, I don't know.
0: It's not much. It's very anticlimactic. But I <laughs> met him at the Hudson Valley Film Festival in Rhinebeck, New York, in, must have been the mid to late 90s. We heard that this was going on, my friend Brian and I. Brian listens to the podcast. What's up, Brian. We went to Rhinebeck uh, to this little art house theater, and we saw a tribute to Richard LeGravenace, the uh, screenwriter. And then we went to some somebody's house or estate somewhere for a party. And I don't know how we forced our way in, but we were there. And Paul Thomas Anderson uh, was dating Fiona Apple at the time, and they were there at the party. And my friend and I sat on a couch with them and drank wine and made chit-chat. And I was not uh, a good conversation partner, and I don't remember anything that was said or gleaned. I barely knew who he was, but in hindsight I'd like to think that I inspired his genius in all these great movies we're talking about.
1: Oh, I've always thought that I saw you and his protagonists.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was actually a huge storm uh, during that. I think it might have even broken a window or something. It got very dramatic, oh, wow. and uh, then we left. <laughs> all right. So I think we both watched Hard Eight. I realized about 10 minutes in that I have seen Hard Eight before. I don't know that I was aware it was Paul Thomas Anderson's first feature at the time that I saw it a long time ago, but uh, I gave it a watch. What did you think of it, Dan?
1: I enjoyed the ride. I wouldn't think that this was like one of my favorite movies. I would have wanted to see it at the time because it's impossible to look at it now with uh, the people who are in it because they all became so much more than they
0: are then now it's a very 1994 or five whatever it is movie
1: yes it's very much of its time i i mean the performances are good um philip baker hall when you mentioned his name i was like i know i know who that is and then you see a picture i know of course that guy he's in like everything (laughs) beloved character actor um john c Riley, to me would not get cast in this today um if he Mm -hmm. were you know not 20 years older or whatever uh Nor, nor Gwyneth Paltrow, but I, I enjoyed the movie on the whole. We've got um, this man played by uh, Philip Baker Hall named Sydney, who meets John C. Riley at sitting outside a coffee shop, looking like he has uh, perhaps unhoused or has no prospects, and he offers to take him to where not Vegas, but is it Reno or um, to so, teach him, that, yeah. teach him kind of how to beat the system of. The house in gambling. And uh, Gwyneth Paltrow plays Clementine, who is a cocktail waitress and uh, knows both of them, ultimately ending up in a relationship with uh, John C. Riley. Samuel L. Jackson is uh, Jimmy, another shady character um, in this casino world. Philip Seymour Hoffman makes an appearance as a craps player. And this is a lot about uh, different loyalties and about long term guilt and trying to make things right. And to be honest, I don't remember how it ends. But I, <laughs> <laughs> the ending wasn't the point; uh, the the journey was the point. And watching some uh, Vegas esque uh, scenarios play out is, yes. is the fun of it.
0: Yeah, it's a much more straightforward movie. It's a lot shorter than his future features will be. It's at about a hundred minutes. The way that he let, lets the characters inhabit uncomfortable scenes, and the way he builds tension, and uh, you know that that's kind of where you can see his trademark but uh way more straightforward from a storytelling perspective than than these the other films we've been talking about. Yeah. Um yeah, I I enjoyed looking back at it. It's satisfying and and not groundbreaking, but um you can see the his skill is there from from this first film.
1: Oh, absolutely. Completely competent and enjoyable movie.
0: And then we rewatched There Will Be Blood. Yeah, we did. I first saw there will be blood. I did not see it in the movies. I probably saw it on video or HBO or something not long after. Uh, and I think I was impressed with it, uh, but overwhelmed by it at the time when I saw it, I thought that it was very rough and difficult, but I thought it was very important. And I felt like I, you know, I I don't know that I got it in the way that I might say I get it today. And I think I appreciate it a lot more now than I did. This is a, uh, 2007 drama film directed and written by Paul Thomas Anderson, very loosely based upon the novel *Oil* by Upton Sinclair, and starring Daniel Day-Lewis uh, and Paul Dano. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis in one of his you know great method roles of the of the uh, turn of the century as Daniel Plainview, an oil man. Uh, the first wordless twenty minutes of the film, we see that he kind of goes from being a prospector and miner to discovering oil and then over time he kind of makes himself into a oil tycoon uh seems to be purely in it for power and money and he acquires a young man uh when one of his workers is killed he acquires a baby and he raises this boy as his son but it kind of seems like he's a, pro- a prop for salesmanship purposes and we see him make deals with towns where oil has uh, been found. And ultimately, we meet uh, Paul Dano's character, Paul Sunday. And I want to talk about this Paul and Eli situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, he comes to Daniel Plainview representing a community and, and uh, a, a, seeming to offer uh, a, a business deal. And uh, the Sunday family owns a ranch and belongs to a church which turns out to be pastored by eli paul's twin brother also played by paul dano and a strange rivalry kind of forms between daniel and eli uh in turns they use the tricks of their trade of fundamentalist religion and uh unbridled capitalism to manipulate and shame one another the movie kind of devolves Tonally, uh, as the uh, mental health of Plainview seems to disintegrate over the years, and we end on a kind of operatic note of madness. I don't know, Dan. It's <laughs> I'm not doing this movie justice. I assume most people have seen it. So uh, I unabashedly love the movie, though. From the start and the, the dread in the score, the beauty of the photography, Uh, I just kind of go along with this movie for the ride. I don't know. I'm talking way too much, Dan. What's your history and your feeling upon revisiting There Will Be Blood?
1: Well, I totally saw it in the movies. I remember that it was going to be one of the big players that year, and so definitely was a must-see. I remember it leaving me a little bit cold, though ultimately I enjoyed it. It was kind of hard going up against um, No Country for Old Men, which is a perfect movie, and there will be blood is not it it is flawed but in a way only a really good movie could be i couldn't quite even put my finger on that what that flaw is um maybe it's just that there is no ultimate uh human center to it Mm -hmm. um ebert takes
0: a crack at it he points out a few things like no female characters right an obsessive adherence to its main character but that's kind of the whole thing really
1: yeah. So it's kind of like necessarily to tell the story it wants to tell, it has to make itself not perfect in that way. I mean, I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um The ride is great, even if the metaphor didn't work as well as it does. The metaphor really does work though. Um if uh Plainview is capitalism and uh Sunday is religion. It's interesting the relationship between them that uh, religion needs to baptize capitalism in order for it to get yes. what it wants. Then ultimately, when religion wants a favor back in the end, uh, capitalism swallows it up and right. destroys it. Yeah. and th- and that's exactly what I think we can see has been occurring in you know American politics at least for the last forty or fifty years that tenuous relationship between um not not church and state but the church of the state and the state right <laughs> you know and yeah. the, these are really um vibrant charismatic performances I, I think that paul dano does a great job for being a much younger um less uh pedigreed actor than daniel day lewis um it almost seems like in what i've read that casting him as both brothers was a sort of a happy accident because another actor was cast, and then um, PTA didn't like the performance, fired them, and just had Dano play that brother too. Because why not? Right, and which I, I which is a like choice. What what well, I I kind of do. Um, it was a it's a, it's a choice that creates a mystery that it never explains. Right. <laughs> um, that I kind of am drawn to that. There's mm-hmm. something very weird going on in this world in this story, and. If it were intentional, the screenplay would try to explain it. Oh, we're twins, mm-hmm. or oh, you know, there's just that moment when he meets um Eli for the first time and he thinks he's looking at Paul, and he kind of gives h right. w that what the hell look as he walks away, but otherwise, it's not explained right and we're not sure are they the same person is one a phantom what what happened, and I love that mystery that it gives the story, even though it seems like it wasn't an intentional one.
0: I would, but that's to me, that's the thing. I would like it too and appreciate it as a mystery or an oddity if it was baked in. But then finding out that it was simply a decision at the last minute uh, to switcheroo, and then oh, we'll just do this; it'll be weird. To me, I would like to believe that the whole movie has more uh, premeditation than that. Um, well, it doesn't. That, that's what makes it play. Is if I feel like I'm in the hands of artists who know what they're doing. I, I you know, it seems like it would have been easy to just make it one character if you but i guess they maybe they made that decision too late.
1: Yeah, i i don't know the full story behind it. Just i read that one little blip.
0: Uh to the relationship between Plainview and Sunday and the and the Church of the Third Revelation, it is very interesting the back and forth how there are moments when Plainview is clearly the one who is morally superior to the church. Right. Because Absolutely. he's, in, you know, he's doing everything cravenly and, and for the, for the, uh, interests of business, but he's straightening up the town. He's giving people stuff to do. He's, he's making sure that this, you know, old man Sunday doesn't beat his daughter. Um, and so there's that weird embarrassment of this guy comes into town, uh, just looking for your money and he's got it. You know, the, the church can't provide the kind of rigidity and morality that he can, but then of course you, over the course of things, it's impossible not to see the the deepest evil is in the heart of the oil man, mm-hmm. and in that entire industry. And the church just kind of looks kind of quaint and useless by the end.
1: Right. He he looks pathetic in that final you know humiliation. That even without it, he just his even coming there, he right. there was a deadness to him.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and before the famous you know uh, mm. horrific act at the end, there's the making, the forcing him to say what he forces him to say, forcing him to say God is a superstition and whatever else he says, but prophet, and that is, to me, that was one of the most resonant things in the, in the movie, uh, even more so in 2020 of the ability of, of, I keep saying capitalism, the ability of wealth and corruption to kind of make religion dance. Yeah. And, And the fact that it's so naked, but it's just... I don't know, like they, they still somehow need and use each other. It's, it's remarkable. I can't really articulate it, but I was amazed how this movie felt resonant. um, These years later.
1: Yeah. More than ever. I think it was a little ahead of its time. And I, I just didn't remember a lot of the story elements. I didn't remember how interestingly it was shot, how good the visuals are throughout, how uh, good the score is. It's, um stark and full of dread um it's very effective
0: yeah Uh, but you can see how what an experimental venture it is when he makes a movie especially one like this or the master and you can see in both cases i'm sure the same amount of artistry and preparation went into it and it's just a question of how the brew cooks out i mean you know and in there will be blood, as we say. It's not perfect, but it certainly hits on something. It's certainly, I mean, it's it's indelible. And people who maybe aren't even fans of movies like this know the catchphrases from this movie, or the you know the the lines and the and at least the the conflicts and types in this movie. It's just something is indelible in the heart of it.
1: Yeah, I don't think that I have much more to add than um, I liked watching it again.
0: Yeah, uh, Paul F. Tompkins, one of my favorite comedians, has a very blink and you'll miss him part he's he's running the town hall in the first town where Plainview goes and he's the guy kind of quieting everybody down and he chases him out apparently his par- his uh, scenes were longer but they were cut out but i always enjoy seeing comedians in being used in uh, dramatic films we, you mentioned uh no country for old men being the other big prestige movie this year they were filming in the same texas ranch oh were they at the same time and in fact, the pillars of black smoke from certain scenes in this movie interrupted the fi- filming of, their, of uh, No Country for Old Men. And they had kind of a little bit of a clash between the two uh, groups shooting those two movies at the same time. Huh.
1: Well, somewhat ironically, they yeah. drank their milkshake.
0: Right. Which, by the way, that uh, apparently uh, Paul Thomas Anderson claims that whole milkshake bit is actually from transcripts of old uh, court notes that somebody actually used that analogy when talking about how they stole people's oil
1: well that uh it's so bizarre and strange i'm kind of glad that it comes from there and not someone's contemporary mind
0: right right yeah it sounds it does sound weird and anachronistic yeah Uh, especially since i think it may actually be because the the events of the novel again it's really only very loosely based on the novel it's not the, the, you don't find this story in that book you just find a similar character with a completely different name but it also takes place in the 30s whereas this movie's transposed earlier to the turn of the century and then it's 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 ending is around the, the 20s mm-hmm. somewhere
1: also notable that year was uh Michael Clayton and Juno were the other uh... oh wow
0: wow yeah, yeah. well uh there will be blood. Gets the old holds up treatment. <laughs> Take that. Stamp it. Still a good up.
1: movie. <laughs> we yeah. said so. That
0: that indelible movie that everybody knows about. Mm, right. uh, we are here to acknowledge it can still be viewed. <laughs> it can
1: still be viewed. It's okay. It's
0: still available. All right, Dan. Uh, well, it's fun to talk about movies with you. Always. Uh-huh. I'm going to try and keep an eye out for new releases that can actually be seen. Yeah. I went you. to RogerEbert.com and I noticed that the front page is littered with new things. And I'm wondering how to see them.
1: Yeah, I saw that too. I didn't um do anything beyond see them. Yeah. And wonder. All right, so that it or what?
0: That's it. <laughs> this has been our podcast. We've been Dan and Josh. You can follow us both on Twitter and Letterboxd. The show is at holds up pod on Twitter. Our music, as always, is by Jonah Rapino. And thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Goodbye.
1: All right, we'll stop, get my audio.